0: Hi, I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling, and I'd like to welcome you back to the FOSS podcast. At this moment, we as Americans find ourselves in the midst of a national outpouring of rage and grief, centered on the tragic police killing of George Floyd and fueled by so many other events just like it. We at FOSS are disturbed and outraged by these killings as well as the outbreak of police aggression that we've seen in their wake. We stand with demonstrators around the country and the world in calling for a thorough and long-overdue reform of the United States' criminal justice system. Just one step in a long process of purging systematic racism from America's institutions. Furthermore, we believe deeply in the resounding truth that neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim, and that silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. We believe that every citizen, every organization, and every institution has a moral obligation to use what power they have to oppose injustice. We'll share some of the steps that we're taking to do our part in that fight at the end of this episode. But we would not exist as an organization and wouldn't be here speaking these words right now if we didn't truly believe that stories are a vital part of that fight. My guest today is both an embodiment and a champion of that truth. Van Jones, a graduate of Yale Law School, has a long list of professional accomplishments that include... Co founding six nonprofit social justice organizations, hosting four documentary and political commentary shows on CNN, authoring three New York Times best selling books, championing two landmark acts of Congress, and even working for President Obama as his green jobs advisor. As Van and I discuss in this episode, he credits much of his driving sense of mission and values to the stories that inspired him as a child, which also helped inspire his belief, as stated in the tagline of his production studio, Magic Labs Media, that the earth is made of stone, but the world is made of stories. For over two decades, Van has been using that belief in the power of stories, as well as a deep understanding of how to wield them to build a better, cleaner, and more equitable future for all Americans. We recorded this episode several weeks ago, and so in it, we don't touch directly on what's currently happening in the streets all across America. Instead, our conversation examines the broader impact that stories can have through the lens of both Van's personal life and his professional work. And so, without further ado, I'm very honored to welcome Van Jones to the Future of Storytelling podcast. Van Jones, it's such an honor and pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for being here. I'm honored to be here. It's great to see you. So nice to see you again. So I read that as a kid, you read a lot of comic books. Mm-hmm. True story. Who were your favorite superheroes?
1: Well, the X-Men. I grew up when uh, Marvel comics were still mainly an underground phenomenon. You had to be a super nerd, a super geek to know who the X-Men were. And, I mean, you were going to get a wedgie at some point that semester for <laughs> sure, just by definition, if you knew any of that, that world and that universe. But I really, I grew up uh, as a you know, skinny, nerdy, bookish Emotional kid on the edge of a small town in rural West Tennessee, in the, you know, born in 68, so in the, you know, the 70s, the 80s, when there was no upside for being a nerd. Now you can be a nerd, you can be a geek, it's cool, there's Silicon Valley, it works, you know, it's Will. I am, I mean, you can make it work. No, you were just a bully magnet um, with your, you know, weirdo uh, comic books and Dungeons and Dragons or whatever it was. It's trying to survive high school, and that's how I grew up.
0: Well, we shared that because I was a crazy Marvel collector. Like I, I lived for those. And favorites personally, yes, Daredevil, yes, X-Men, uh, Luke Cage, Power Man, Iron Fist. Like sure. the, the more obscure, the, mm. yeah. <laughs> the, the more I love to collect them and read them and consume them. Would you say that some of those stories and some of those characters were influential for you? Have they continued to live out and play out in your life?
1: I wouldn't say influential, I would say fundamental. The idea of the X-Men in particular, you know, these, these kind of weirdo kids with these kind of special abilities and they were sworn to protect a world that hated and feared them. Sworn to protect a world that hated and feared them. There's no better kind of framework for being an African-American activist, you know, in the U.S. context than that. So you're in this world that doesn't appreciate you, maybe is afraid of you, and yet, you've committed yourself, as the X Men did, to like the most noble of purposes. The, the kind of power fantasy of the marginal nerd to be able to become something great and do something great uh, is, I think, at the root of the whole comic book um, ethic, and it's and it's my ethic.
0: And with great power comes great responsibility.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, Peter Parker, um, and 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 uh, Uncle Ben telling him Uncle that. Ben. Yeah, Uncle Ben telling Peter Parker that. Um, You know, that is really my ethic. I I have so much respect for Stan Lee. And I think that his ability to kind of humanize the genre, I think that was really important. And I took all of that in. The nobility of the heroic ethic of Stan Lee is my uh, heroic ethic as well.
0: Nicely said. So I have um, a long relationship with you that you don't necessarily know about. (laughs) So, I was at the Bioneers Conference in 2003. Wow, life changer. Life changing because I will never forget the speech that you gave there, where you, I came there as an environmental activist, and you opened my eyes to the need for social and prison reform and social activism. And you took those two movements and you tied them together. You literally said a movement that is courageous and visionary on the environment. But cowardly and ignorant about the social issues will fail. And I remember that and I actually cried with you during that speech that you gave when you so honestly and authentically shared how passionately you felt about this and how moved you were and nobody, there wasn't a dry eye in the house Mm -hmm. as you gave that talk. I mean, honestly, I was like, where did you come from? (laughs) Where did you come from? And how did you learn to get up there and and give that talk, like speak from the heart like that?
1: I appreciate that. Well, first of all, uh, not easily. You know, I had a a speech impediment uh, growing up. You can still hear remnants of it. I was incredibly shy, beyond shy. I grew up going to public schools. I grew up in the black church there's this thing in the, in the black church, and I, I'm not saying this to be racially offensive or divisive, but there is something called the black church. If you've ever been in one, you know it ain't the same as a white church. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and, and there's this sort of theological position that I just call the hallelujah anyhow position no matter what's happened during the week, no matter how many times we've been mistreated or or discriminated against or called horrible names or even lynched or even falsely accused or even, you know, jailed or killed, hallelujah anyhow. You're not going to steal our joy. You're not going to steal our dignity. Hallelujah anyhow. But because I grew up in such a weird place, you know, Jackson, Tennessee, who's ever heard of that? Then I wind up going to law school at Yale, who hasn't heard of that, and then... I moved to the Bay Area and not to go work downtown for a big firm, but to work essentially in low income communities with transgender people and homeless people and kids in trouble. And it all just kind of got shaken up inside of myself. And it kind of came out as this commitment to protecting things that are sacred no matter where they are. Like I could see how the solution for the earth and the solution for people were the same thing. Solution for the planet, solution for the people, same thing. That you could fight poverty and pollution with the same thing. And then I got invited to go to Bioneers, and I just had so much to say. And when I got there, I looked out. Um, that was probably the biggest audience I ever spoke in front of. And I'm looking out, and it's you know clearly like mostly white, very affluent, but with these big hearts. And I'm thinking to myself, if I can just get these folks to care about these kids from Oakland, there's just nothing that we can't do. I mean that was probably the most consequential speech of my life, because I just something just came pouring out of me into that moment, and it created ultimately the pathway that led me to the Obama White House and everything else. You know that was was the farthest thing in in, in our mind at the time, but that was a really really important moment.
0: So it seems to me that you then went on this path. I know I know the whole story about going to the White House. I know the story about getting pushed out of the White House. And now most people know you because of the work you do on CNN as a political correspondent or, or commentator. But what people don't realize, because they, they don't think about commentators as getting shit done, right? They think about them as people who talk for a living and don't really do anything. And you are unbelievably effective as a, as a person who gets important things done. There was the Green Jobs Act. Sorry, I don't remember the exact name of it. From- sure.
1: Green Jobs Act, 2007. Sure. All right.
0: I do remember it, okay. And then, and then um, the First Stepped Act, first big major legislation for prison reform in a decade. Um, that was later in 2017, is that right?
1: Uh, yeah, and we got uh, uh, Trump twenty eighteen. We got Trump to sign it, which was which was ama- um, unbelievable. Like, yeah, it's so funny because I, um, you know, the Green Jobs Act of two thousand seven. We got George W. Bush to sign that uh, to get green jobs, you know, all across the country. And then um, the First Step Act, the criminal justice reform piece, uh, we got Trump to sign.
0: I mean it's crazy and, and and also in an age when when Congress is just like divided and in a standstill, right? Shut down because of the, the partisan rancor. And yet you've been able to get these these major things passed or be, be a important part of doing that. What's the formula for getting real progress made?
1: I mean, what I have tried to do is look for the areas of common ground between the right and the left and put my put my work there. Now that's a choice. It's not the only choice, not the only valid choice. There are people who have, and I think with great justification, said, listen, we can't be friends. You're snatching babies from their mothers at the border. Uh, You're trying to take away women's rights over their bodies. You're trying to exclude people from the country because they're Muslim. We're not going to be friends. I got to fight you. And so there are people who have gone to the battleground and they are fighting hard, and I respect that. That's important. I've played that battleground uh, role in times in my life. But for me, in my heart, there are areas of common ground. And what happens is when you don't look for the common ground, the people who suffer the most are the poor, the marginal, the vulnerable, the addicted, the afflicted, the incarcerated. Those are the people who lose out. So we just built a liberty and justice for all movement, a left and right movement to get something done. And through the Dream Corps, which I founded, which has uh, Cut 50, a bipartisan campaign on criminal justice, plus the Reform Alliance, I'm the founding CEO there, Um, backed by Jay-Z, backed by Meek Mill, backed by Robert Smith, Robert Kraft, et cetera. Uh, We've passed, uh, you know, over the past 36 months, we've passed almost two dozen criminal justice bills on a bipartisan basis including in red states like Georgia Um, we got Trump to sign a bill the the first step act they've got 8,000 people out of the federal uh, prison system earlier with many more to come now the federal system is the smallest it's been in a couple of of generations now doesn't mean that I don't fight Trump on the stuff I disagree with him on doesn't mean I'm going to vote for a Republican but it does mean that on issues like criminal justice and addiction that hits both sides of the aisle, and generational poverty, which hurts people from Appalachia to the hood, and, and the barrio and the reservation all the way back around. There are things we can work on together.
0: So let me ask you about one of the other things that you've built. You, you have a production company, Magic Labs Media, and I love the tagline for that company. The earth is made of stone, but the world is made of stories. If we want new facts, we need new fiction. Can you tell me a little bit where you, why that's the tagline and how you came up with that?
1: Was just, it just came to me in prayer. Um, you know, I pray a lot, uh, meditate a lot. If people look at what's going on in the U.S. and maybe throughout the West politically with some horror, no matter what side you're on, uh, just the level of divisiveness and dysfunction and disrespect is so high. This overwhelming narrative that the problem is somebody else and the solution is to smash them to bits is everywhere in the culture. It's a spiritual problem and a cultural problem and a narrative problem. Well, then that's where we need to be putting a lot more energy and attention and time. And so, you know, Magic Labs, we've done, you know, we've got this virtual reality project where we let you be in the body of a, of a small black child uh, sitting on the front seat of a car um, you, know, you, blink, you blink awake and you're, you, you, you pick up your, your hands, your hands are like the hands of a small black child. You look to your left and your dad is a big black guy, Winston Duke, who played M'Baku in the Black Panther, Marvel, Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he's your dad and he's driving the car. And he's joking with you and he's telling you funny stories and everything's going great. And then the lights start flashing behind you and you get pulled over. And you get to witness the reenactment of an actual traffic stop from the point of view of a small black child on the front seat of a car. And it's not gruesome, but it's very disturbing. And we took that virtual reality content, two and a half minutes, to CPAC, the conservative political action uh, uh, conference, with, I don't know, 6,000, 7,000 Trump supporters. And we had law enforcement people. So we have video of people taking off their MAGA hats and putting on our visors. Taking off their NRA hats. They make America great hats and putting on our visors. And two and a half minutes later, going, wow. I literally never thought about what, you know, when I use these police interactions and of course I always, you know, side more with law enforcement because I understand they got to protect themselves. They got their own families to come home to. But I just had never thought about what it would be like to be a child in that car, would that happen to your dad? Now, that's not gonna change the way anybody votes, but it can change it, because it it's not gonna create political agreement, but it can create understanding. And that's what you can do with culture.
0: I love that you're using VR and experimenting with it. Um, at the Future of Storytelling uh, last year, the, the piece that won the FOSS Prize for um, Bridging the Divide, it was a category that we had, it was a piece called I'm a Man. Uh, which was this beautiful interactive VR piece by um, Derek Ham, And you became a uh, sanitation worker uh, in 1968 in Memphis, peacefully marching uh, with your sign that said, I am a man. It was a series of uh, vignettes. And, and this is the um, strike, the sanitation worker strike that Dr. Martin Luther King came to to support the strikers. And in the piece, he's assassinated. Uh, You don't see that, but it happens in the course of this piece. And so you go from being part of peaceful protests to an evening when there's riots in the streets. You, as a viewer, you are this African-American man. Again, you can tell from the color of your hands. And the piece ends with you on the streets now and police cars pull up. It's evening, lights, headlights are, are focused on you. And the police come out and say, put your hands up. And you are placed in this moment of moral decision to physically raise your hands during this VR piece or not. And you're filled with the rage from what's happened and sadness and and. That was an amazing emotional and empathetic moment for a you know, white guy who, who's not had the police point guns at him before, uh, but probably for anybody really. Anyway, just another example of a, of a similar kind of use of the medium for, for this purpose. I wanted to ask, you work so beautifully across so many media, right? Television, podcasts, radio, documentaries, journalism, uh, VR, uh, do you have a favorite? Do you think that there's one that's more useful for the kind of influence and impact and change you're trying to accomplish?
1: Well, uh, I appreciate what you said. I've also uh, written, a, written a couple of books I'm proud of. but oh, the, um, Of course, the-
0: three New York Times bestsellers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, all available on Amazon.com or wherever you buy books. Uh, <laughs> um, but... Um, You know, it it makes me proud to hear you say what you just said. I mean, given your your role as kind of like the preeminent curator of of this whole kind of world that I'm trying to be a part of. So I appreciate this acknowledgement. What I'm proudest of, of all the things I've been able to do in media, is an eight-part series, a docuseries I did called The Redemption Project. It didn't win any big awards. It didn't get great ratings, but it was the best that I could do in the... The, the the domain of television, commercial television. It's very hard to do meaningful shit in commercial television. And what it was was, you know, we found instances of violent crime, and we found the, the victim, the person who had been hurt, or the, or often the surviving family member, and we found the person who had done wrong. The person who had done wrong, sometimes it was vehicular homicide, sometimes it was a shooting no sexual crimes, but, you know, but, but crimes of, of, uh, of violence. The ones who really wanted to make amends and who had often made some change in their life really wanted to talk to the person who they had hurt. And so we facilitated eight of these dialogues where we would bring the person who had been hurt or the surviving family member either into a prison or into a community center where they were going to meet with the person who had completely changed their lives in a moment of, of, of rage or, or stupidity. And we just filmed them talking. And um, like I said, didn't get big ratings, didn't get big awards, but I'm so proud that CNN put it on the air. And if anybody ever wants to know what does Van Jones believe, that's it. People reaching across some of the toughest lines possible and finding some kind of hope. What I most like to do is just to talk in front of real audiences, which now with this pandemic, maybe we'll never do again because you you can go on a long journey with people. You know, 30, 45 minutes, you can really tell a lot of stories. You can also, you can just be silent. If you hesitate more than a second or two, somebody's going to jump in. It's like it's just not, it's not allowed. Uh, TV is a very noisy, colorful medium. You know, you're in a room with 500 students or 2,000 conference attendees. You can just shut up for a second and just let what you just said sink in. And you can get to a much deeper place with people. And so I love, I love being able to talk uh, just to, to real audiences. I have become incredibly comfortable, though, on live television.
0: You're really good on it. <laughs>
1: uh, well, that's very so kind of. So quick, so fluent, I, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I, I cheat, and I'll tell you how I cheat in a minute. But the reality is that during the 2016 election, I was on TV so much for so long. You know, you'd be on TV for 12 hours, 16 hours, and something just switched in me where I just became comfortable, and I know what a gift it is to be on television. Even in this era where people are moving away from TV and everybody's on their devices or whatever, there's still something about television.
0: It's still the mass media. Yeah,
1: I know the importance of my voice in that medium. You're talking to half a million, million people um, on a on off night for CNN. Right. Um, a big night, you might hit fourteen election million. Election night, yeah. Election yeah, night, eighty million. 80 million people. I mean, there, there are rock stars and celebrities that never talk to an audience that big. And I cheat, by the way.
0: Okay, so what, how do you the, cheat? I want to hear that.
1: The way that I <laughs> cheat is I have a bunch of very, very smart friends uh, who I have on a WhatsApp thread. And while I'm sitting there watching the debate or watching the primaries, whatever. We, no I.
0: No way. I this just, is like having it written on your sleeve exactly, or something. You're literally exactly, pulling it out in the middle exactly. of the
1: test. Exactly, yeah. So they all start arguing and debating with each other you know, on the WhatsApp thread. And so I just steal. I just steal from my friends. <laughs> and people think I'm so smart, but I'm not. But I'm smart enough to have smart friends.
0: I love it. That's like, you're literally like looking over someone's shoulder, doing, yeah. getting an answer off their well, test.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> 30 people's shoulders thirty people
0: show.
1: So, it's, uh, so um, but it. it's 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 allowed. It's allowed.
0: So, so I've um, again had the pleasure to see you a number of times speak publicly, and I've seen you in many of those appearances wear either a purple shirt or a purple tie. Can you tell me why?
1: Uh, because uh, it's in honor of Prince. You know, I, I never wore purple before he died. I used to wear orange or red. Like the, I think they kind of matched my skin tone a little bit better. But when I left the Obama White House under fire uh, because of my left wing radical past kind of catching up to me, I've been a berserkly radical, proud of it too, by the way. Um, in my 20s, uh, I was you know, with every ism I could find anarchism, communism, any kind of ism that was against the system, ism, I was for it, you know? And, um, and very, proud of, very proud of myself to be so idealistic and, and, and passionate as a young person. But the, the positive thing, was a guy named Prince called me and took me in, so I went from working with the president to working with a prince. And uh, Prince used to always say, "In most countries, man, that's a promotion."
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, um, so we had uh, we had a great run, six almost seven years together. Changed my life. Great guy. And so, ever since he he, he passed, I uh, I wore a purple tie. I had one purple tie. No, I had a purple shirt. In my closet, I had nothing purple. When he, I mean, I thought it would be too corny for me to be like his guy doing his philanthropy and all his social do-gooder stuff and be wearing purple. I thought that would be like too. So I had nothing purple. I had one purple shirt when he died. So I put that shirt on. I went on air and and, and disclosed the fact we were even working together because you know he, you know, he he was very very private person. So people didn't even know he was giving away so much money and doing all these things. And then ever since then, I, I've, uh, I, and, you know, it's been you know almost four years now. Because it has been four years now. Um, you know, I've worn a purple shirt and or a purple tie every time.
0: So tell me about a story that helped you believe in the power of stories. Is there something that really shifted your, your thinking? You know, that's all I had
1: was stories. I mean, I'm not a rich man's child, but all I had was stories. Uh, you know, the, the black community is really an oral tradition. You know, storytelling is a big deal in the South period and then certainly in the black community. The future of human civilization is the future of storytelling. Uh, human civilization is a story. Uh, each human civilization has told itself a story, and that's what let it create irrigation or send somebody to the moon or you know, create rights for women or whatever. It's the future of, of, of humanity is the future of the story we tell ourselves. And I think this virus has come to teach us about oneness and wellness that's what i believe uh in a pandemic that pan pandemic means all everybody you know you can't have your wall street job unless somebody who is a woman of color usually from another country is willing to wipe your grandmother's behind in a nursing home and 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 feed your kid take care of your child yep and take care of your child as a nanny or as a school teacher Uh, That Amazon package can't get to your door unless a human being comes to your door. And you better hope that human being is not sick. And suddenly it turns out we're all one. And so this idea of oneness and wellness. Now listen, the creator already sent a bunch of prophets before to tell us about oneness. Don't be mad now that we got a hard lesson. I mean, we had all the great prophets and the sages and the Oprah Winfrey's and the Fred Rogers and the big birds and... And and Kermit the Frogs and all these great people have come. Ellen DeGeneres and and everybody else has come to tell us, "Let's, let's be one. So now we have to have it as a tough lesson. But if we learn this lesson and we put the least of these at the center, the people in the prisons and the homeless shelters and the women's shelters and the foster homes who can't shelter in place and who the virus will just come through again and come through again and come through again, you'll never get rid of this virus if you don't deal with the people at the very, very bottom. Make sure that they're healthy make sure that they're, they're safe, then if we learn the lesson and if we govern ourselves accordingly, then a new story will come. And the next normal will be a story that lets us have a human civilization at peace with itself and with the earth. And that's what this century is about. And that's what this new story has to be about. And I'm, I'm proud to be on the journey with you.
0: Amen. Van, we need more superheroes today. And... Uh, our, that's basically one of the lessons I take from, from this conversation. And you are one of my personal heroes. Yeah,
1: same back at you, brother.
0: You're fighting the good fight. You're out there using your super skills as a storyteller to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. So, Absolutely. Hey. Thank you, brother.
1: Hey, thanks. Well, have me back sometime, and let's stay together. Appreciate you.
0: Hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Van Jones as much as I did. If you'd like to learn more about Van or watch the moving video of his speech at the Bioneers Conference in 2003, you can do so on our website, fost.org. There's also a link to the appropriate page in this episode's description. As a way of supporting the crucial work that Van does, FOSS will be donating $5,000 to his organization, Dreamcore, which works to close prison doors and open doors of opportunity. We encourage all of our listeners to support Dreamcore by texting DONATE to 974-83. We have also decided to devote this month's newsletter and our social media feeds to sharing resources that people can use to educate themselves on racial issues as well as innovative and powerful storytelling projects by black artists. Thank you for being part of the Future of Storytelling family. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, give us a review and share it with others. A heartfelt thank you to Van Jones and to our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope you'll join us next week for another conversation. Until then, please be safe Be strong and story on.